it's about anything that didn't turn out the way you thought it would, anything that isn't happening the way you thought it was going to. And the pain that comes along with holding on to loss versus seeing what's there and finding out and being curious about what is there. Welcome to the Great and Famous Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Thompson, and together we share your stories of the everyday people that changed your life. We reconnect you with your greatest influence, recognize their generosity and lessons, and inspire others to do the same. It's practical wisdom from people you never heard of, aka the great and famous. Welcome to the very first episode of The Great Unfamous. On this podcast, we're going to interview the most important influence of your life to honor their contribution and share their lessons with the rest of us. I'm Jim Thompson, and today we kick off this series with the greatest influence of my life. This woman is a very special person and mentor, even though she and I didn't know it at the time. Uh, She's changed the lives of hundreds of children and parents for more than 20 years as an occupational therapist. And we crossed paths back in 2004 over a period of about two years after my son was diagnosed with autism. And those two years, boy, they, they left a mark in the best possible way. I've described her as a life preserver when I was frantically searching for answers. But lucky for me, she provided more than answers. She provided a new way to think about my kids, my family, my job, and think about myself. That changed everything. That's why I'm so very excited to welcome Alex Sullivan to the podcast. Hello, old friend. Oh, what a treat. Thank you for inviting me. So Alex, uh, would you please introduce yourself? Let us know a little bit about who you are and how we came to meet in 2004. That's a long time ago. (laughs) Feels like a couple of lifetimes, especially given the past couple of years. My name is Alex Sullivan. I am a mother and a wife, and uh, I am trained as an occupational therapist. I live in an intergenerational household with my husband and my three kids and my parents. I have spent the last few years, probably about three years, kind of doing some different kind of work, stepping away from OT and doing some some work on myself and really um, giving myself the opportunity to be present for what feels like the closing in last few years of having my kids around in the house uh, with us. So that's a little bit of my background. Well, look, I think there's three areas. We're going to, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. I would love to talk about Alex, the OT. I'd love to talk about Alex, the mom, and I would love to talk about Alex, the person. So why don't we start with uh, how we met back in 2004. From my perspective, for for listeners, a little background, like my wife, Jen, and I have three children, uh, Will, Abby, and Jack. And at that time, received a diagnosis that our, our our oldest son had been diagnosed with autism. And so you know, as with any parent, like we, we immediately start looking for answers, right? What, what was the right thing to do? What's the wrong thing to do? Like, where do we go? And uh, we were fortunate enough to, to connect into this program at Texas Children's Hospital called Bridges. And what was unique about it, the program was intense, right? The so program you, was intense. You could, not, you could not join the program unless you were willing to commit to spending, I think it was 
three to four hours a day at the facility with your child, working side by side with the therapist and your child in the in the sessions. So that, you know, my wife and I both have jobs, you know, and we were trying to figure out like, well, how are we going to do this? And I'm like, I don't know. Well, we're just going to do it. We're going to figure it out. And it wasn't, it wasn't cheap either. I remember there was a stipend that you had to pay, which was way more than we had. And I said, I, I, we can't afford that either. But we applied and we got into the program and there was a, a reduced fee. So we were able to afford it. And then Jen and I talked to our uh, our employers. We were able to get off. We were able to split the time there two or three hours a day. And one of us was there every day. So when they pulled us into the room and said, we're going we're gonna to introduce you to you know, your program lead. And it was a young, new person to the program. They just, I think we were, we were your first family. Yeah, you were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were your yep. first family. And mm-hmm. we, they introduced you to us. And I thought like, oh, geez. <laughs> I said, we've got the rookie. Like, I want the, yeah. I yeah. Want the, the 60-year-old therapist who's been doing this for 50 years, you know, that, you know. <laughs> and then we met you. And the thing I remember most, Alex, was... Not that you were going to be the most skilled, experienced occupational therapist, but that you immediately addressed and understood what we were going through emotionally as parents, right? So forget what you're going to do with our child, but you understood what it was like for us to be going through this. And so I felt like you were an occupational therapist with our child and you were this psychologist therapist with us. And I thought, geez, this this woman's getting paid to do two jobs and, uh, or she's getting paid to do one job and she's got two, especially with a handful that, uh, that me and my wife were. So, so that's what, that's my memory was that we had someone that really understood us and was going to guide us through this. Uh, And that you were so important in my life is because you taught me how to deal with things well beyond uh, raising children, um, dealing with the, the needs and of autism. And so that's why the lessons that I learned with you, I carry with me and use them every day about courage and being patient and being thoughtful and asking smart questions and being patient again. <laughs> and um, those are, those are the things that I remember about when we first connected. So it's so funny that it's crystal clear to you. Um, I, it's, uh, it's more of just a feeling to me. I, I had the pleasure and the opportunity, the amazing opportunity to be, become a part of a program um, that Texas Children's Hospital had started called the Bridges Program. And it was um, a multidisciplinary program. It brought all kinds of disciplines together to um, work with children and families where children have been diagnosed with autism and autism spectrum disorders. And the program utilized the DIR four-time model that at that time was really new and, and we ha- it was new to us. It, it was new to my world and um, really gave us just this beautiful framework for understanding all the pieces that come together when supporting children both that are diagnosed with having special needs, but I feel this is just a beautiful model that helps us understand children and and families. What I remember about that time specifically with regard to your family was how engaged 
in the process. <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> that's a nice way to put it, Alex. Engaged, engaged intensely engaged. Yes. Uh, you know, and 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 also just so utterly vulnerable with where you were at 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 each point in time, uh, and so it gave so much to connect to and so much to um, understand, not to mention you have just deliciously um, enticing children all the way around. I remember loving each of them in for different reasons. And it was so compelling. It was such a compelling time. And it was an intense time of, of learning how to integrate things that maybe I might've known um, with other, other disciplines and other perspectives. So that was, that was what, that's what I remember about uh, that time and about meeting your family. Let me ask you this for those of, for those of our listeners who are not exactly sure what an occupational therapist is, other than it's super important. Um, can, you just, <laughs> can you just describe for the layman, like what is it, what does a typical session look like with an occupational therapist and a child? Like, what are you literally doing? Oh, okay. So what am I literally doing? Yeah. Um, what, what we are doing is we are uh, providing a safe space for a child to explore and connect and show us what they need. So for children with uh, sensory processing differences, that means that the way that they interpret uh, incoming information from both the environment and from their body, because we get a lot of sensory information from our bodies, um, it, it, sometimes it comes in really strong and they may over, overreact to that um, information. And sometimes it doesn't come in strong enough. And so they, and, and often it's a mix of both. So um, you might have really diminished information coming from the body, but yet every time there's a sound, it feels like it's, it's, it's too much. And so what we're doing in a session is we're watching um, how, what a child gravitates to. We try to set up an environment based on our best guesses of what they need. And then we watch what do they gravitate to? What are they needing? And we watch for the signs that they are, they are becoming regulated, engaged, um, you know, communicating. And we work up, up a ladder of kind of, okay, they can do this. Well, let's, what would be the next challenge we, we would want to bring to them? And, and that challenge can come in so many different areas. It can come from uh, a social emotional challenge. It could come from a, a sensory uh, motor perspective where it's a physical challenge. It could come from a cognitive challenge. So really thinking about like where that child is at, um, making sure that they are uh, getting the kinds of uh, sensory support that they need to be able to engage and work on um, what we call in OT, the just right challenge, that, that one challenge that, or that, that type of challenge that is just enough to make you uncomfortable, but not enough to push you over the edge and so that you have the best chance of, of being successful. 
Uh, and, and so depending on the child in front of you, a session could look a million, uh, a million different ways. Um, but in terms of the thought process that's behind, because uh, a lot of people come into, or come into gyms, I'm sure you might've thought this when you first saw, you know, uh, they're like, well, what, what's even happening here? What is, the, <laughs> this is just playing. <laughs> um, but there, there are so many pieces that we're, we're looking at to give us information to say, oh, this, this child in this body might just need this, or, you know, oh, it looks like that's maybe harder because maybe they're paying attention to something in the environment that the rest of us are able to block out, or, you know, it, it could be, it could be so, so many things because it's really all the pieces that, um, you know, come together to, to allow us to be able to do what we want to do and what we need to do. I'll, I'll double click for a second on that just right challenge. So many of the lessons that we learned with you, we use later in life, well beyond occupational therapy, well beyond child raising, uh, mm-hmm. using it in, in all, all different aspects of life. That just right challenge, um, and, I, and I wrote about it in that, the blog post that, that kind of set up what The Great Unfamous is about, one of the things that we learned from you was that ability to be work hard to get a place where you're comfortable. And then once you're there, quickly move to a place where you're uncomfortable. So it felt like every time we, we achieve something, you were then moving us on to the next thing. So like you never really got to go, got to come to bridges and enjoy a comfortable day. So it's been, no matter how successful you were or how, uh, how much regression you had, you were always in a place that was uncomfortable. Um, I think so much of life is um, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. I think like that idea of getting comfortable with being uncomfortable is fun for me to see that that was something you took away from me so many years ago, but yet that's such a big theme in my life as well is like recognizing that, that the goal is not comfort. <laughs> <laughs> very, very. The, the goal is not comfort. Yeah. It's it, that just right challenge is, is great. I, I'm, uh, I'm going to yeah. use that phrase too. Well, look, you, you have a gift for this, um, all modesty aside. What would you say? What would you say is the superpower that allows you to be who you are? Well, as with most gifts, it's my, it's my sword. It's two sides of the same, you know, um, blade is uh, my sensitivity, I think, uh, is both something that allows me to really connect deeply and really notice what's happening with kids and, and to share what's happening with families. That being said, being a sensitive person requires a certain level of um, care towards oneself because it's easy to allow yourself to get over overstimulated, over over concerned, over over everything. And so, I, I think one of the things that I've had to learn uh, in in my life is both the strength of that sensitivity because when you're a sensitive person, the messages that come to you from society. Uh, as you grow up, typically are not positive. <laughs> they, they are usually like, uh, you're not strong. You're, you're, you, you cry about everything. You know, uh, why, why are you laughing about that? You know, whereas these are just the ways that your body responds to the stress of, you know, 
noticing and being aware of so many things. And so um, I think what I've, I've had kind of an arc on it where I used to kind of have a little bit of shame around it. And then when I got into the, into my work, I realized it, it, it you know, this is a huge part of, of what makes me good at my job. It makes me um, successful in my job. And it, it is honestly what I like about my job. I like connecting. I like, I don't mind waiting for a moment to land. I don't mind waiting a long time. Mostly what I hate, what, what causes me to be frustrated at my job is like, you know, the constraints of time that you have in, in sessions and with people and you have to kind of move on. But I really love connecting. And I think now where I find myself is trying to, now that I know that's a really big part of um, both what makes me who I am as a person, but also makes me good at the work I do is how do I also um, treat it as a gift? and um, recognize that it, it is not to be wielded <laughs> all the time under all circumstances and, um, you know, and not cared for. I have to recognize that uh, with that strength comes some limitations. And so I have to take care of myself oftentimes differently than maybe society would tell me is okay. <laughs> so look, as you, as you look back, uh, 20 years as an occupational therapist. How many children would you say you've worked with? I, I will have to guess, I would say between, uh, I mean, all the children over the years, I mean, probably 300 is a number that I think would probably come to mind. So do you, do you ever pause and think that if you do the math, that there's 300 children that you've worked with, let's attach two or three family members to those children. Have you ever paused to think about the lives that you have positively impacted in the course of your work? Have you literally sat down and thought about that? No, I most certainly have never sat down and thought about that. <laughs> no. Mm -mm. So why? You know, I think there's a tendency to think about what you couldn't do or what you didn't do or what you wished you'd have known <laughs> at a certain point in time for the person that was in front of you, that I definitely think that, um, no, my perspective would be more on what I, what I didn't do, <laughs> what I couldn't do, what I, what I wished I could have done. And so, you know, that's a place where you can, you know, get real stuck. Um, you know, if I, if, if, if I do my job well, people move on, people do go on and, and live their lives. I have a few of you that, that stay in touch, you know, that I get the opportunity to see what happened after, after you left and, and all of that. I think what I'm trying to get out is like at any given point in time, it doesn't feel like I'm 
necessarily, you know, changing people's lives. It feels like um, I'm in, I'm kind of in my own mind of, okay, now you need to do this. Now you need to do that. Now you need to do this <laughs> instead of reflecting back on. And, you know, even, even here, Jim, with your family, like, I don't sit back and go, oh my God, look at what great work. I look at this work we did together that I, you know, I was a part of. I, I look at it and go, oh, that family really was able to really do the work. You know, it, it's almost like I lift myself out of the equation and go, they, they would have done this with anyone. I mean, if, if whoever they had met, you know, so that was a long, long winded way of saying, no, I do not. Thank you for the opportunity to do it here. I think that's the point. Yeah. That's the point of this. What advice would you have for people to pause and look at the lives they've impacted? So you, for the most part, have not done it. I remember a conversation with you and me, uh, with Will, who was very into sports. He loved sports. And I remember you saying like, I'm like, yeah, but we need to get him interested in music. We need to get him interested in other things. And he said, Jim, he's going to have certain strengths and don't take those away. Those, those strengths are going to serve him for years to come. And so it's okay. It's okay for him to have those strengths and for him to uh, spend time on those. And now Will is a junior in college studying sports journalism. Um, and so I, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. He's an amazing young man and you are most definitely a huge part of the success story that our family has had. So that ability. So if there's something for our listeners to take away from this is you look at a person like yourself, someone that I've looked up to for many years and realize that they have not paused, have not taken time or because they're exceedingly modest or taking at least solace in the, the accomplishments and the contributions and the generosity of the giving of themselves for years and, or in your case, decades. It's a great lesson for all of us to take that time and look at the, look at the impact that, that you've had. And so that's why I want you on this podcast so that you can't avoid it. You're trapped. <laughs> You're trapped with you your got good me. and you will have to answer for them. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you know what? I yeah. Well, I have to say, I I, I as hard as it is, um, and and I I it's hard. It's hard to sit and listen to someone tell you something really nice. I think it's it's such a generous gift, and I really want to receive it, and I really want to let it grow in me. And I think, you know, you and I have shared this idea that in this line of work and given my sensitivity, it is, um, it's really important. This is part of what I mean when I say taking care of myself, it is important to, it's not about, oh, you did such a good job or you did this, but like, this was meaningful. This was very meaningful. It made a difference. And that is a really beautiful thing for for both of us to spend time thinking about and, and knowing. Agreed. Yeah. So as we continue to dive in Alex, the OT, one of the most valuable things, there's so many valuable things that you conveyed to me. One of them was sharing a written piece called Welcome to Holland by 
Emily Pearl Kingsley. It's about 300 words. It's the, the <laughs> one of the briefest inspirational uh, writings I've ever seen. And it changed, it changed my life. Uh, it really did uh, because it taught me how to think about my current situation. But I came back to that over and over again. It served me in multiple, multiple times in my life when I needed perspective to understand like where I was and, and why this, why things were going to be okay. So with the importance of that, I'm going to ask it, it is very brief. So mm-hmm. Alex, so if you would be kind enough to read Welcome to Holland uh, for our listeners, I think it would be really helpful for them to understand uh, the message behind this. And I'd love to hear after that, hear about what it means to you. Uh, would, you would you do that for I'd be happy to. Absolutely. Welcome to Holland. I'm often asked to describe the experience of raising a child with a disability, to try to help people who have not shared that unique experience to understand it, to imagine how it would feel. It's like this. When you're going to have a baby, it's like planning a fabulous vacation trip to Italy. You buy a bunch of guidebooks and make your wonderful plans, the Colosseum, the Michelangelo David, the gondolas in Venice, You may learn some handy phrases in Italian. It's all very exciting. After months of eager anticipation, the day finally arrives. You pack your bags and off you go. Several hours later, the plane lands. The stewardess comes in and says, welcome to Holland. Holland, you say? What do you mean Holland? I signed up for Italy. I'm supposed to be in Italy. All my life, I've dreamed of going to Italy. But there's been a change in the flight plan. They've landed in Holland and there you must stay. The important thing is that they haven't taken you to a horrible, disgusting, filthy place full of pestilence, famine, and disease. It's just a different place. You must go out and buy new guidebooks. You must learn a whole new language. And you will meet a whole new group of people who you would never have met. It's just a different place. It's slower paced than Italy, less flashy than Italy. But after you've been there for a while, and you catch your breath, you look around, and you begin to notice that Holland has windmills, and Holland has tulips. Holland even has Rembrandt. But everyone you know is busy coming and going from Italy, and they're all bragging about what a wonderful time they had there. And for the rest of your life, you'll say, yes, that's where I was supposed to go. That's what I had planned. And the pain of that will never, ever, ever, ever go away, because the loss of that dream is a very, very significant loss. But if you spend your life mourning the fact that you didn't get to go to Italy, you may never be free to enjoy the very special, the very lovely things about Holland. And that is why I had you read it instead of me. Because it's beautiful. It is beautiful. It's so beautiful. I've shared that with multiple people at multiple times for multiple reasons. It's such a a great centering writing. It just brings perspective, much like what we're trying to do today, which is I do want to give you a gift. I do want you to understand the impact you've had on people and that, you know, this understanding your gift or ignoring that gift and the impact it's had is a disservice. And so ignoring the amazing things about Holland is a loss, Yeah, is a loss. 
when did you start giving that out? Like, how did you come across that? And what does it mean? What does it mean to I, you? Yeah. So I received this at some point. It's it's kind of lore with us. You know, it gets passed around, and for some reason, I think the reframing that she does in in this for anyone this doesn't necessarily this 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 her particular journey is is about having a child with special needs but it's about anything that didn't turn out the way you thought it would anything that isn't happening the way you thought it was going to and the pain that comes along with holding on to loss versus seeing what's there and finding out and being curious about what is there and it's not to say that you don't process the loss and that you don't feel the feelings related to the loss because the loss is there, but it does open you. And I hope I, I know from like when I read that, of course, when I read that, I reading it as a beautiful way to reframe what it must be like to. And of course, I think it's just important to note you and I worked together before I had kids. I was not a mother when I worked with you. And so for me, it was like this, this way of, of using someone's experience and how they were characterizing what it was like to then share with people who, you know, were, were just really present in that space of this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And I, I have to do all these things. And I don't know the pressure of like, what's happening at that time frame when you're finding out that your child is reacting to things in a way that you don't understand and that you don't know what's going on and and you want to help them i think that's so much of what what we did together was you know kind of tease out and and figure out what's important here what's really important is it important that you think your child needs to be doing music and going to lessons here? And, or is it really important that we maybe spend a little bit of time? Hey, sports is really important to him. Let's hear more about that. Let's hear about what it is about sports that he's interested in, that he likes. And so when I read that, I just, you never know who that's, who that's going to speak to, but I, I've offered it to many people and I appreciate you offering it back to me so many years later because, oh, I've been on a few trips to Holland since then. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really, um, yeah, it's, it's really important uh, to notice when we're holding on to some vision of something that we think needs to be a certain way to be okay and that that's just not true things don't have to be a certain way to be okay there's all kinds of ways for things to be okay if, if we're with the right people you know if if we have the support we need if we have what we need and I think when I share that with families that it, it's really an effort to just have something to connect to a you're not alone you're not the only one on this journey and B, there's going to be a process of letting go. It's okay. It is okay and normal and right to grieve what you, you thought was there, but there might be some surprises. You know, there might be something really great also to notice and, and to um, acknowledge and, and accept. 
that trip to Holland in a lot of cases will be better than Italy. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the travesty is that you could potentially miss the fact that Holland's better than Italy because you're mourning that loss of Italy. You know, I would not have changed a thing about how things developed because so many amazing things came out of this. I didn't see that at the time, but it was part of that, that gift that, that you gave to me and, and my family was the ability for us to see beyond the trees and see all the amazing things that are possible and, and likely even. Let's, let's shift gears for a second. When we completed all that amazing work that we did together and we parted ways in Houston back in 2006, um, we said goodbye at an outback. Uh, we, we had our very special goodbye luncheon for, for Alex. In that out, outback, you, uh, you had some shocking news for us. So <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about uh, how you learned you were pregnant? and what that, what, that journey, <laughs> what that journey was like. Yes, of course. Um, so yeah, I think I found out you guys were going to be moving um, right after I found out I was pregnant. And I think I had had my first, my first visit to the, to the doctor. And, um, you know, this is, this is just a classic story in my, in my family. Cause I didn't really tell many people that I was pregnant before I went to the doctor the first time, uh, Tim knew and, um, my parents knew, I think, and, and, and my grandfather knew in that time, you know, I, I would make these, these comments like, um, you know, if, if, if this is twins, we are definitely going to have to think about giving one up for adoption because, you know, I, I know a set of twins at right now. I don't know how their parents do it. These children are competing to see who gets to the end of the driveway first. They're competing to see who brushes their teeth first. And it's resulting in like this, a meltdown if one of them is second place. (laughs) And I'm like, I said, I just don't know how they're doing it. I don't know if I ever shared that story with you. And so I don't know. I think I was probably six weeks, you know, they, they want you to wait, you know, and come in when you're six weeks pregnant, something like that. And I saw the doctor and she did a blood test and we were there. I was after work. So I, um, it was late. We were some of the last people in the office and, and she, she sent me for an ultrasound and. I thought that was weird on the first time. And then, you know, when I, the the technician was doing the ultrasound and, and she asked me if I had uh, been on fertility and I said, no, why? And, and she said, well, um, I'm, I'm seeing at least uh, three babies in here. And (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, at least I, I think, I think I muttered, please, let's not look for any, let's not look for any more. Uh, it was the most shocking experience of, of my whole life, for sure. It was so unexpected. Uh, not myself, nor, nor my husband's side of the family has uh, any history of, of multiples, of the, which we're aware. And so it was just not on our radar at all. We left uh, that 
appointment and uh, I called my parents and said, hey, would you like to meet for dinner? And so we went to dinner and my dad is an OBGYN and <sighs> my mom it, it was labor and delivery nurse uh, for many years. And we sat down at dinner and I passed my mom the ultrasound pictures and she, you know, she took one brief glance at them and passed them over to my dad because all she was, how did you like your doctor? What did you think? Would you, are you going to have a good relationship with your doctor? And, and my dad is sitting over there and he's like, does she already know? My mom said, no, what, no, what? <laughs> so he shared that he had seen at least two babies in, in the ultrasound picture he was looking at. And so we had this, I, I, I don't even know how to describe it. Just the, it was just the strangest, uh, most delightful, you know, meal together, kind of just going, all of us just going, what is this? We don't know what this is. And then I think I got, I think I got your email very shortly after that appointment that you guys were, were going to be moving and uh, to be closer to family. I remember feeling both very sad that you guys were going. I remember that so vividly, but I was also like, wow, what are the odds that like this family that has taught me and prepared me so much now is like going to now be just a part of my life moving forward. Because I tell you, like, it's just funny, Jim, like all these things that we did together, you know, I, I, I will never forget how often we worked on like, you know, the idea of, of negotiating when two people want the same thing, and, and there's only one of them. And, you know, like, how we're going to figure out who goes first in any, any situation. <laughs> and, that has so much been a part of my life, <laughs> like, you know, just moving straight into I had I had all the I had all the training, you know, really to just move into this, this world that I met, like, had I had I not been at Bridges, had I not met specifically your family, had I not had the opportunity to work with you, those are things that I, I wouldn't necessarily have picked up because I wouldn't have had to. And I think it, it's very fun to think about the, the lines of this, this connection and how many times it, it just reconnects back on itself. You know, like mm -hmm. it feels to me like in, in so many ways, it's weird to think about you're telling me what you did, what I did for you. But now I'm like, even just now telling you what you did for me by inviting me into the process and, and, and letting me be a part of it and, and staying with it and, and signing up for all those hours. And, you know, it just, you, you gave me a foundation for what it was going to mean for me as I started my journey uh, as a parent and feeling outnumbered from the beginning and having no idea what I was doing. I drew on those experiences. I drew on watching you the things we worked on together, I pulled all of that into well, that's, being, a, being a mom. Yeah. That's why I see these themes recurring. Yeah. You went to the doctor and you left with the announcement that you're going to land in Holland. Right. Absolutely. Right? And at that time, we'd been together two years and we were starting to feel comfortable. Right. It was time for us to get uncomfortable again. Yeah. And so yep. it was time for us to move. Um, right. And you had a new challenge in front of you. We had a new challenge in front of us and our time together had been yeah. beautiful and wonderful. 
but it passed. And yeah. so again, am I going to mourn the loss of the fact that I don't get to spend time with Alex and, and, and her wisdom, or do we move on and say, the only reason I was able to like um, rationalize with myself was that someone else needed Alex more than me. <laughs> and that this was, you know, we, we've already learned enough from Alex and we needed to move on and take on the next challenge because there was another family coming along that needed Alex far more than we did. And, and that gave me great solace, me inventing that story, but I don't think it was an invention. I think it was a true. Right. And sure. then when Absolutely. you told us you had, you were going to have triplets, it felt even more true. It's yeah. like, nope, this is, this is a time for Alex to get uncomfortable again. <laughs> and, and this is time for us to move on and let her get uncomfortable. So, and I did, I got real uncomfortable <laughs> physically, emotionally. <laughs> so let's, so let's talk about that a little bit, because I think listeners who hear this incredibly talented, gifted, educated woman on this podcast and Alex got it all put together. Alex doesn't have struggles. Alex helps other people with struggles, but, but she doesn't have struggles herself. How did that unfold yeah. uh, in your life as the next stage uh, yeah. for you? So um, I think I always say my pregnancy was a tale of two two pregnancies. It was, and I don't really feel like I really went to Holland until the second half of my pregnancy. Um, I so didn't know anything about being pregnant with multiple that I still thought I was going to Italy, even though I was going to have three. I knew I'd need to pack more, but I still thought I was on my way to Italy. <laughs> and I had just the most delightful time ever because of the age I was. And I had, you know, been married a couple of years. Whenever I was going to share my news that I was pregnant, everybody figured out they thought they already knew it. And so, you know, I got to kind of give them a double dose of, oh, yeah, well, you, yeah, I am pregnant, but that's not what is, is interest. That's not what's exciting or interesting. And so, it was a, it was a wonderful time of like, just having this fun secret that fun to tell people, everybody was excited and shocked. And it, it, it just was fun. And, you know, it's funny. I look back occasionally there was the person that, that, that now I know knew a little more than I did. <laughs> and their reactions were kind of like concerned, you know, like, are you, how are you, how are you going to, you know, manage that? How are you, what are your plans for stepping back from work? And, you know, when are you going to, you know, this and that, and I didn't even really understand what, what that was. So um, I just went on with my, my happy self and enjoyed these, these moments of just, you know, having your first pregnancy. And then I, went on probably I was about 18 weeks pregnant I went uh to the Texas Hill Country on a on a family reunion I remember that was that was a a wonderful time because I had we had our first nephew born in the family so he's six months older than my my kids are and and he was the baby there and we have all these beautiful pictures of him with me pregnant and you know it was just such a nice time but I remember like I was having a hard time sleeping while I was there. And I, I just figured it was a different bed, different place, whatever. And so I went home and the next day I had a doctor's appointment and 
Um, while I was there, my doctor asked me, as he had on every other visit, are you having any contractions? I said no, because in my mind, when someone asked you if you're having contractions, what I pictured was a woman screaming in a bed. You know, like this is this is all I knew of having contractions. So um, I said no. But then that night, I was lying in bed and I was like, "Well, I wonder if all these like episodes of like my stomach feeling tight. I wonder if that's a contraction. Like I, I, because I, I, I would have all. I, I and I knew that. I knew that was happening. I just didn't equate it with it being a contraction. And so um, I ended up uh, calling uh, back and saying, I think maybe I am having contractions. And he sent out a monitor uh, and, you, you know, it's just this cascade of events. He's like, you're not going back to work. You're going to be on bed rest. I think bed rest needs a new name because it is, it, it, while the bed is there, it is not restful at all. <laughs> and it hurts. Bed rest hurts. And so I, I suddenly got very scared. It didn't, there I was kind of trapped in my body, kind of aware of these sensations that were, were problematic, um, or at least I viewed them as problematic. So at that point, Alex, like, what are you afraid of? Like, what, what is that fear around? I think the unknown, I think all of a sudden I'm starting to recognize I'm, I'm not where I thought I was. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not even on my way. I'm not on my way to Italy. I'm probably in that place of thinking I might be able to still get there, but how am I going to do it? You know, I'm going to have to change planes, going to have to figure it out that I, I, I can't point to at that moment, what I was, I think I was mostly afraid that I was point. I was afraid that I had, first of all, I was feeling some shame around the fact that I had missed a sign that my body was giving me and I was not reporting it accurately. And therefore I felt like I had put myself, my, my babies into danger. And um, I felt really responsible for that at that part in that time, when I was still at home, I just really felt afraid that something was cascading and building into, Oh, well, these are, if these are contractions, then that woman, you know, screaming in the bed is not far, far away, you know, like, it's this idea that something is happening. And there's nothing you can do about it. I I just remember feeling like helpless, like I was being swept away. (laughs) I ended up, I spent about two weeks at home, during which time, um, my grandfather had a stroke, and I lost uh, a very important person in my life. And I couldn't be there. I couldn't, he was, he, he survived his stroke for a a few days and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't be there. You know, I, I just was, everybody that was around me trying to support me was also going through, we were all going through that loss at the same time. And so it was such an intense period of just grief. I mean, that is really what it was. It was the letting go of one version of how things were going to go and how things were going to be. And um, we were doing that all of us on multiple levels, not to mention the fact that the fact that I was so scared made everyone around me very uncomfortable. (laughs) So, you know, I, I vacillate and everyone was so kind to me. I mean, like, I can't even tell you how kind, um, everyone was to me. And yet the experience of it was 
what they could handle at any given point in time. And then when they just couldn't handle it anymore, like enough, this needs to stop. You know, you need to stop. You're, you're making this worse for yourself. And so no one could make me feel better. And they tried everything. You know, I just was afraid and holding on tightly (laughs) to what I thought was going to be. And I ended up in the hospital at some point. I met the threshold of the amount of contractions you're allowed to have at home on this one certain medication. And um, I think my doctor thought he was going to kind of put me on some medication for the weekend and try to tamp things down and then take me off of that medication and send me home. But every time they tried to take me off of the medication, the the contractions just swept right back up. So uh, after a long weekend, it felt like um, he just came in and said, we've tried and it's not going to work. You're going to be here till you deliver. And um, I mean, at that point I was 20 weeks along. And so, and so how long, how long were you in the hospital uh, before you delivered? So I was in the hospital, I think almost exactly six weeks uh, before I delivered. And um, in that time, I, I, I never left the room and the only time I left the bed was to go to the bathroom uh, and uh, I got to shower occasionally. (laughs) (laughs) And so it was um, a very nerve wracking time uh, because my, that, that feeling of, okay, now I'm in the hospital, things are going to be okay. That, that didn't last. I, I immediately kind of fears of what this was going to turn out to be continued to creep up they only got more kind of real in terms of what it what could happen so initially you know I was not far enough along that if I delivered that the babies would survive and so they did you know the the doctors and the nurses are all working towards getting you to that kind of viability standpoint um, where at least if you go into labor you you have a chance of your baby surviving then you get to that point and, and they're all cheering. But then I'm thinking like, what is the quality of the life of these children going to be? And, and I'm, that's all going to be on me. And, and I, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can do that. And so those fears of just not being enough, not being able to handle things and, and making up wild stories about what's Mm -hmm. going to be, um, you know, it just, it was a very dark time. And even within that, it was such a, when I reflect back on it, it was such a gorgeous time because it was, it was truly a time when everybody in my life came together to, to try to help. And, and they did everything they could. And we have these wonderful, you know, hilarious stories from that time where because what would happen was I, I wanted someone with me at the hospital. So I was afraid if I went into labor, no one would be there. And so a cast of characters from my family would come down and spend the day with me. And Tim would go to work and he would ride the train between the hospital and downtown where he worked. And then he would come home back home, back to the hospital and sleep the night. So he would be with me at night. And then a couple of nights, my mom would stay with me so Tim could go home and do laundry and and whatnot. And my mom and Tim shared a set of pajamas. (laughs) (laughs) And so we just always make this joke about, oh, my gosh, remember the red shorts and the I love energy T-shirt? Because they both wore the shoes. 
as you look back on it now, and, and as you describe it, and I've never thought of it this way, is that you're dealing with a life and death situation in an excruciatingly small increment over a very long period of time. Yeah. And yeah. when the babies came and you entered that next phase, what was that? What was that like? So it was, it was hard. It was, uh, but it, it was exactly what you would expect it to be. I was debilitated from being in bed for that long. My body was, I did have a C-section. So um, that was another thing that was eye-opening to me. People talk about having C-sections like it's no big deal. That was one of the most painful recoveries I, I have had in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember <laughs> like there is a classic story. I did deliver at 30 weeks. Um, I went into labor. Um, the babies were in the hospital for six weeks. I spent probably, uh, I think, three days in the hospital postpartum. Another thing, somehow, I don't understand how it, it, nobody knows what that's about. That's really also, you know, needs some light shed on it. It's a very weird experience. <laughs> Um, but I immediately went to postpartum and it was a general postpartum floor. Here I was having been in the hospital for six weeks and they were treating me as if I was any other woman who had come in and had a C-section and was recovering. Mm-hmm. And I will never forget, I was doing my best to get out and walk the hallway. And this nurse passed by me and said, get going, get going. Your baby's going to need you. You know, you need to, you need to pick it up. And I, I think you're like, and. I mean, I, it didn't take much to make me start crying. And well, it doesn't ever take much to make me start crying. But uh, I just remember feeling tears just poured out of my eyes. Um, and, and so much of it is like, you like, you just realize so much of these misfires are like just this lack of context. Like, I didn't have context for my mom was the one that explained to me she's she thinks you've just come in and delivered a baby. She doesn't know you've laid mm-hmm. in bed for eight weeks, whatever. Um, and so I, I, di- I didn't know how to make sense of so many things like that. This is what I, I think. It's like I didn't know how to make sense of what was happening to me. <laughs> what I was feeling, what I was, and, and it does seem now, looking back on it, I have made a lot of sense of it. I have done the work of making sense of it. But at the time, it, it, it's like it just goes. And, and now you're, now you are. It's like, I, I remember when I woke up in recovery thinking, I did have a moment where I was like, okay, well, I don't have to worry about that anymore. And like that lasted for like, two, you know, two seconds. And you're like, oh my God. <laughs> there's so much else to think about and worry about you know you don't think about it you don't you are basically in the trenches and you're just you know I'll find a way you'll find a way and I did I was home driving back and forth between the hospital then for I would have to have somebody drive me because I wasn't cleared to drive and I was pumping milk uh so I went on their schedule immediately <laughs> rather than recovering you know I I just remember I was pumping in the middle of the night one night and I went to kind of rinse out the stuff, the the attachments and whatnot. And I dropped, (laughs) I dropped one of the, I didn't drop the milk, but I dropped one of the pieces and I was going to have to bend over and pick it up. And I just saw, I just sobbed. I just, it hurt so bad. And I know it was not just it was not just the pain of the C-section, but it was just this idea that, yes, this is exactly like I know what my mom was worried about. Like she would always come in and say, Alex, this is not the hard part. 
the hard part is coming. You need your, you're going to need your energy. You're going to need, this was her way of kind of trying to help me calm down about being anxious in the hospital. <laughs> it's like, this is nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so funny. It's true. She was right. Which is a very annoying thing about my mom. <laughs> Often she is right. But I can't help but wonder <laughs> if a different approach might, might have had a had a, a better um, effect. Although I have to say, even at this point in my life, I'm not sure. I'm Knowing what I know now, not just about the pregnancy, but about how stress affects our system mm -hmm. and how to change that for yourself, I would have probably done some things differently. <laughs> but what would but, you have done? What would yeah. you have done differently for someone who might be going through a similar situation? Like what advice would you have for them? Yeah. So I have a much better handle on understanding when I'm feeling anxious, what I can do about that. And even though I wouldn't have had access to many of those things in that moment, I carry my breath with me everywhere I go. And I could have used my breath to support myself. I didn't know how to do that back then. I didn't even know that you it like was breathing, something that- Breathing exercises yes, or Yes, breathing, breathing and meditation, yeah. Mm -hmm. But mostly for me, it's breathing. I, I, I'm not very good at meditation uh, in the sense that it's very, 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 very difficult for me to turn my mind off. Um, but if I focus on my breathing and if I focus on, you know, I know now that when my nervous system is activated into, you know, a, a, a heightened state uh, of getting me into fight and flight, I know that I can use my breath to re-regulate my nervous system. It's the only thing I can do anywhere I am. To, I have a lot of other strategies, but that is the one that I carry with me everywhere. And so I know that if I breathe and I focus on a longer exhale uh, than my inhale, I know if I do that long enough, my nervous system will re-regulate. Will re it, it will come back into balance. And I've had enough experience with it that I, I can trust it now. And I know it will happen. It might take longer than I want it to. It hasn't failed me yet. And it's a powerful tool. And I know now too, like for situations that I, that I have to endure, you know, like, again, the whole idea is, you know, comfort isn't the goal. Being calm all the time is not the goal either. Not getting, not getting your, your nervous system triggered is not the goal either. The goal is that you have a resilient ability to handle stress and, and all of that. And I feel like I... Um, I have tools, you know, that, that come in the form of exercise, that come in the form of being in nature, that come in the form of uh, taking time to recognize what's happening in my body and know that that is my responsibility to take care of. It is not someone else's responsibility to stop doing the thing that's making me upset or making me, you know, uncomfortable. That has been a huge lesson for me. I didn't learn that necessarily from my pregnancy, but it's a really interesting thing like to shift and recognize that when your body is under stress, when you are stressed, your, your thoughts can be creating stress for you. I know now like stop with the trying to solve a problem before you're regulated. You need to get regulated first. And like, that is like 101, what you and I did together all the time, you know, 
was 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 recognizing that regulation is underneath ev- everything that comes uh, you know up from that. And so, what are those? So breathing is one, right? The one you yeah. carry with you always. But um, when you do need to recenter yourself, yeah. what what are the what are the things that you use? So I typically, um, if I can, I go outside for a walk, and I don't take my dogs because I don't. I, I want to be able to. <laughs> Um, look up and notice. I live. I I happen to live in a um, very tree filled area. I have a very. I have a lot of green space around me, and I have trails. And I just I will go um, where I can, and I pay attention to what I'm there to do. I don't go out and walk and ruminate over the thing that was upsetting me and how I'm going to solve that problem. I go on the walk with the sole purpose of recentering myself. And so in that way, it's both how I think about it and what it is, right? None of these tools I use are things that someone didn't suggest to me or tell me to do and Mm -hmm. that I've tried before, you know? What I didn't understand for myself was that you don't just go out for a walk and then you can come back and you can solve your problem. Because like for someone like me, I actually have to break the cycle of what's happening in my mind and know I'm not going on a walk so I can figure out exactly how I'm going to handle dealing with this problem that's coming up in my life. No, I'm going out for the walk. First of all, I know what I feel like. I know what's happening inside me when, when I'm doing that thing where my mind is going there's a cascade of sensations that are happening in my body, right? My heart is beating fast. Sometimes I have a pit in my stomach um, and I'm tense in here. And I know that, and I can identify that now. And instead of like going, well, how can I pull my shoulders down? How can I, you know, just, just take some breaths, you know, whatever. Um, and then get right back to that thing so I can figure out how to solve that problem. I now know I stay with my body. I stay with it until I notice that my shoulders have come down of their own volition because my nervous system has allowed them to relax. Not me telling them what to do, not me controlling this thing that's supposed to be good for me and doing it in the way I can perceive of it. No, I just basically surrender myself to it. And that is a very um, different way uh, for me to approach things. I have been one over time that has, you know, I, I love to hear, you know, and, and, and know, oh, you could do this and it makes a big difference with this. And really what makes a big difference is, is knowing yourself, mm-hmm. knowing, knowing your, your body and, and tuning into what is a regulated state for you and, and what is not. And I think when I think about like what I came off of with my pregnancy and then got right into the constant chronic like activation of my nervous system and the little ability to, you know, I, I always would say like, I think I have like three decent babies. It's just too much to have all three of them. You know, like, I think like if I'd had one of them, like, yeah, I might've been able to get some rest or I might've been able to whatever. I don't, I don't know if any of that's true, but I remember having this sense, like I could see where this would be doable with one. It just feels like you're not sleeping. You're doing everything you can to be awake and available to do the things that you, you need to do with 
you need to do, that you're supposed to do, that you should be doing with the kids while they're awake and, and all of that. Um, and and it, it doesn't take long to realize that that has like, that took a sense of a nervous system that's calibrated already towards, you know, sensitivity and whatnot, and just like cranked it up to over the top. And so then what I think set in for me was a, a pattern of disconnecting, disconnecting from my body because it just wasn't safe to be in my body. Nothing felt right. It's not to say that it was a terrible time. I had beautiful, I have beautiful memories of, of the early days, but, but honestly, sometimes Tim and I will turn on like video we took of, of, of that time period. And I look at him and I go, Tim, why is it so quiet? This looks really lovely. I just don't really remember it being like that. <laughs> He's like, well, Alex, we didn't keep the camera on when they started crying. You know, like, <laughs> we, we have curated this, this memory through video that isn't the whole story. And, um, and so it, it definitely, I think, set me up more, even more challenged than when I went back into work and tried to re- enter myself into life as I had known it prior to because uh, I didn't know any of that stuff I didn't have those tools with me then I didn't know that I you know I, I didn't I didn't know how to breathe I didn't I was doing all those things but they weren't making a difference because I was doing them in like a way where I'm like I'm trying this and it's not working <laughs> so I'm not going to do it again you know that kind of thing rather than really recognizing the goal was to regulate yourself, not to figure something out. When you regulate yourself, you might be able to figure something out. You might not, but only if you're regulated. Most people go through different transitions in their life, right? And you, you went through a very drastic transition in a very short period of time. And then you go back to this, this really important job where people look up to you and people depend on you and families are looking to you for the answer. And so when did you start to realize that this, this tremendously worthwhile, impactful world that you, that you built needed to change? It took, a, it took way too long. I, I, I fought it so hard. I fought it so hard. I kind of felt like, like, um, I'd be letting everyone down if I, if I changed anything, if I said, I can't handle something, I can't do this anymore. There was a practical piece of, of me going back to work, which was that uh, four six week hospitalizations was not inexpensive. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and we didn't think we were going to have that many children uh, when we first decided to start a family. So I needed to go back. I had to go back. I had to go back to work. Um, I don't remember it being a choice. I do remember people telling me that I needed to go back to work to have a bit of a break from being at home. I don't, I don't know if that was curated advice specifically to me. I loved my colleagues. I, all of us were in a similar, many of us were in a similar uh, season of our lives. And I got a lot of support from other mothers at work. So it, it wasn't all bad. And it wasn't, it, it, and it wasn't, it, it wasn't even bad. It just was probably not knowing what I know now, what I would have advised myself to do if I were the one giving myself advice back in those days. Was there a moment where you, you dropped the bottle on the floor uh, and you realized like, 
this is it. It's not, it's not working. It's not going to work. I've got to make some changes. I knew that it wasn't like a bottle dropping on a floor. It was more like um, a sense that I carried with me for a long time, waiting for an opening, waiting, just waiting, looking for what the opportunity was going to be that was going to allow me to be able to take that step to advocate for, for myself to say, nope, I need a break. And I know I need a break. And uh, regardless of what anybody thinks about that, I need a break. At that point, and I'm sorry to interrupt. At that point, yeah. are you waiting for someone to say, Alex, now is the time for you to take the break? Someone to actually force you to do it as opposed to you yes. taking the initiative to do it for Correct. yourself? Correct. Absolutely. Not able to do it for myself. I had very dear relationships with, with clients. I felt the weight of, I did not want to abandon my clients. I didn't want to let down my family. I didn't want to let myself down because it's scary to say, I don't know if I want to keep going down this path, but I don't have another path that I want to go down. And what happened for me was that I, I had this just, it was just this sense. And it was always with me that like, whenever something happens, I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to take, I'm going to take it. I'm going to take that opportunity. And I, I did have an opportunity that landed in my lap. And I thought, I think this is the best opportunity for me to, to try this. And I, I floated the idea with Tim. And, um, and what, what was that opportunity? So the opportunity was that um, a family member was uh, going to be having a surgery and that surgery was going to require a lot of uh, downtime and recovery. And she, she had, um, she has four boys uh, that at that time, I think were all under the age of 14. Um, And, and so from 14 to probably four, um, I would guess. Um, And I adore these children and um, my mom being who she is, you know, just my mom is the kind of person that rushes into the, um, the burning building. You know, she, she's, if somebody's in need, if she, if somebody needs something, she said, yes. Well now, like one of the interesting things that happens in our, in our intergenerational situation is I'm like, well, 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 hold on. I mean, are you asking me if we are going to take on this? Are we going to be, are you going there and going to watch them there? Are they coming here? Like, what's that look like to you? What does that look like to me? And because at this point, you're at this point, you are living with your parents. Correct. Yes. Yes. And then your mom is suggesting. Yes. Yes, that we're going to take, take care of those. Yeah, I can help. And, and then I'm thinking, oh, oh, she's saying I can also help with that. And I'm thinking to myself, like, I probably can help with that, but I can't, I can't be doing anything else. I, mm-hmm. I cannot be going to work and, and doing that and, and taking care of, of my family. And so, and I mean, I, I have a very, you know, like we have a very close, close knit family. I mean, uh, but it, it just, I just knew I was going to have to take that time off. Like, and then when I started thinking about that, I thought, well, this is a good opportunity for me to just take that time off. <laughs> and so that's what, when I started kind of, I floated the idea to Tim, I said, what do you think about, and I characterized it as, what do you think about me doing this to see about, you know, helping out, but all also like, I don't want to just say I'm going to be off for four weeks. I want to actually step back 
and see what happens. And if I want to go back, I want to be able to go back, but I don't want anyone waiting on me to return. I want to be able to have closure with people. I don't want to just disappear. And so, you know, Tim, I just don't even know how, how, <laughs> how he has managed with me over these years, but he always, you know, he always rises. He always rises. And he, he said, Alex, like uh, that, that, yes, let's just, we'll just figure it out, you know? And that's when I did it. For you to pull back, your solution was as a mother of triplets, your excuse to pull back was to care for four more kids yeah, and to care for seven. Do you look back at that and think like, is yeah. that the only way you could trick yourself yeah. into pulling back was to say, I'm going to take on this massive responsibility yeah. of caring for seven children. Yeah. I still didn't understand even then, like that wasn't that long ago. That was in 2019. I did not understand that I am responsible for myself mm -hmm. and that whatever I need is okay. It, it does have to be figured out, but I can be honest about what I need. And I'm not, you know, like it was as hard for me to like, that's what I'm saying. Like in a way, my, my work became Italy, you know, it, it was, it was, comfortable it was uh, it was comfortable in the sense that like it was a great I, I I'm I'm energized by by that work I do love like I care deeply about children and I I am so interested in like what we're learning about how all these pieces come together what's funny about it is is that I somehow thought it was about other people. I thought it was about children. It's, it, I wasn't taking the lessons for myself. I wasn't, I wasn't integrating it. I wasn't putting it together for me. I didn't get it. And I was, I guess you're telling me I was helping other people, but I don't know how I could have been because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't owning the lessons myself. And I, I you know, so even then, I, I still didn't know it's okay for me to have needs and for those needs to be inconvenient to people. How did you start to build that? Cause yeah. I think that's something that could be very helpful yeah. to a lot of people. So I had this moment where I was on a road trip and I got an email from a group that I, I utilized some of their uh, products and therapy. And they did this newsletter post about um, trauma and healing trauma. And, and, and it was kind of like it, it showed these three therapists, some of which were mental health therapists, some of which were OTs, how they're using uh, their knowledge of, uh, of trauma to help their clients. And so I'm like, oh, trauma, that's interesting. I mean, that word gets thrown around. And the way I understood trauma at that time was like, you know, someone who had a really, uh, you know, frightening, you know, terrifying situation happened to them. Um, even if I'm saying that, like, when I clicked on that, I was clicking on it to learn about how to help my clients. <laughs> and so I'm reading and I'm reading along and I'm, I, and I'm, I'm getting brought into this world of understanding that trauma is not what happened to you, it's what happens inside your body. 
and explaining like trauma is basically uh, the way energy and memory gets stored in your body when you have uh, an event and, and for, and it's relative, it's, it doesn't need to be something, you know, like getting in a car accident. It could be something like being put on bed rest, uh, and not being able to leave a room while you're scared to death that you're going to deliver a baby. Right. So I started, I started going, Oh my, wait a minute. I, I don't know if I need to know this for my comments. I, I might need to know something about this for myself. And so I immediately, like before we were home, I'm downloading books and getting everything I can ordered um, to kind of delve into a deeper understanding of what this might mean for me. Like I, I was, I was reading and devouring that article in, in a way, like thinking about some of my clients that were struggling with really, you know, significant challenges. And I was like, maybe this is something that's a part of that. And, and as I'm reading, I'm going, Oh, wait a minute, that that sounds like that kind of sounds like me. Oh, gosh, I you know, it kind of sounds like, yeah, I and and that's what's happening to me. I am going, Oh, my gosh, I, I, I think, I think I'm the one that needs to, to learn about this for me. And so in the course of learning about it, I did, um, I did learn how to seek out a therapist that would have training in this area. And so I found a therapist and I, I started doing work. And really my goal with going to therapy was really to try to, you know, be able to integrate an understanding of, of where I am, what, what got me here. <laughs> because I didn't, on, on some level, it seems so obvious. But I, I didn't draw the, the line, the intertwining of who I am and how my biology is, and then how these experiences then just ramped that right up and then kind of left me without my special gift. It left me with, with my gift in, inaccessible to me. And mm-hmm. so I think actually a lot of the challenge that I started running into at work was I couldn't, I couldn't say no. I couldn't advocate for, for myself to say, hey, I think I've got too much on my plate um, with this type of situation. I might need this. I, I kind of became the person like if no one else knew how to help a, a child or a family, well, give them to Alex. You know, Alex will, Alex knows what she's doing, you know, and yeah, I came to realize like I, I just I, I was running literally on fumes and then I was coming home. And like, there are three people who, who need me and need my attention. And I, you know, I'll be short with them or I'm falling asleep while they're trying to, you know, tell me something. I mean, it just, um, and I kept kind of like reducing my hours and, you know, maybe tweaking what I was doing and thinking that maybe if I just got the right balance of work to life, that that would make it all work. But the problem was I was not taking care of myself. I was not aware of my own needs and I was not advocating for them. I, I, I didn't know them, so I couldn't have advocated for them. I was advocating for them in the best way that I knew how, but I didn't understand. I didn't know what I needed. And so when that opportunity came along, I thought I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it and, I, and I'm going to let go of 
it fitting neatly into a box of, oh, Alex took a break and then she went back to work. And, and that, that makes sense to people, you know, like, like what I'm doing right now doesn't make sense to a lot of people, you know, where I, I'm kind of home really immersing myself in what I'm doing and building myself back from a, from a stable base, paying attention to what it feels like to do something. Do I like that? Did it bring out the best in me? What do I need to be available to three teenage girls? There's this saying that I hear, adolescence is the opportunity to revisit anything that wasn't, uh, wasn't fully <laughs> developed during early childhood. And, you know, the idea of, of, of missing that opportunity was something I, I just didn't want to miss out on that. But also, it's not about just being there. Like, it's not about just saying, I'm going to step back from work so I can, so I can be here. If I'm not actually here, if I'm not actually in my body, if I'm not actually present in and understanding kind of myself and what's happening, then I'm really, I'm really just here. I want to be present for this. So I had to, I had to help myself. I had to, I had to figure out what was happening with me, what got me to this point. And it wasn't just the trauma of the hospitalization and the, the, the difficulty of uh, the challenge of, of raising three children. It was also not knowing how, not knowing how to and not valuing caring for myself. So many of the ways that I have cared for myself over the years have been in a way like shame, shame-based people that are sensitive often, you know, they're, they're more fatigued because it takes a lot of energy to, to, to be aware of all the things that are, that are happening and going mm-hmm. on and all those nuances. Mm-hmm. And I've always been, you know, like that is, uh, that is a family, you know, kind of story about Alex was always asleep. Uh, the minute the car started, the minute you went anywhere, um, anytime there was a downtime, Alex is asleep on the couch, you know, right. it, it's true. And I, I remember when I would talk to my therapist and she's like, Alex, like you, you talk about taking a nap as if it's like so shameful. Like what is, what's the problem with taking a nap? And I'm like, well, nobody else is taking a nap. Like I don't. <laughs> right. Right. Like, nobody else is taking a nap. So part of my, my learning was really to let go of everyone else's story. I do, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. It, it matters what you're doing. It matters what you, what you need. And if you keep thinking about this nap as you've given in, you'll never be able to get the benefit that comes with treating yourself to a nap. And, and how other people will benefit from that nap as well. Correct. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you, you think about, um, I, I wish I could remember this, the uh, the writer who talked about this, but the way to envision how we envision our lives. And if you ask yourself, was I different? Was I a different person from age 20 to age 30? And you answer, yes, um, I changed quite a bit from 20 to 30. Well, did you change from 30 to 40? Yeah, I'm a relatively different person. But then if you ask someone to say like 10 years from now, will you be different than you are? And most people think, no, I'll, I'll be pretty much the same as I am now. And so that thought of, yeah, I've evolved to this point, not changed this point, but I'm not going to change anymore. I'm, where I am now is pretty much where I'm going to be. And your ability to look at that and say, look, I need to continue to evolve. I need to continue to change and adapt um, and giving yourself the permission 
to think about what that is. Like, what what is the 4.0 version of Alex Sullivan? You know, doing the work to get there, and maybe you've skipped over a couple versions. I yeah, I think I really for the first time in my life, don't feel like I'm needing to control that. I know, I know I will be a different person and I'm kind of excited to see what's going to come next. You know, what's going to land, what's going to go, Oh, this is it. This is, this is where I, you know, this is where I feel I'm going to be doing my great work, whatever it is. And, and what, what part of me is going to come out, come out for that. What would you advise? For someone who is in a similar situation, I think since the pandemic, a lot of us, self-included, you know, are struggling to gain a better perspective on their lives, right? To say like, wait, hold on. Is is this really where I want to be? Or am I treading water waiting for someone to give me permission or waiting for the right thing to fall in front of me? Like what, what advice would you have for someone who's looking to get a better perspective on who they are now and who they might be four, five, 10 years from now? What I can tell you is what I'm doing. <laughs> and I don't know if it's good advice or not. New things always evoke a very strong reaction in me. Changes evoke a very strong reaction in me. And I know that's true of most humans. You can feel so afraid that it's hard to tease out, am I just nervous? Am I afraid? And what's worth pushing through and what's worth staying staying with longer? Um, I think being present, being mindful and being present in what you are doing. And it doesn't matter if it is brushing your teeth because I, because and brushing your teeth is not a bad example because I I know so many people who, you know, end up like wearing away their gums because they're, they're, they're thinking about something else while they're brushing their teeth. And all of a sudden you've got sensitive teeth and your gums are (laughs) seething. And if you were just like present in recognizing, um, I don't have to push that hard. I'm brushing my teeth right now. I'm going to focus on how it feels to brush my teeth. And I'm going to notice so I don't hurt myself, <laughs> what it's like to brush my teeth. And I'm going to be present in brushing my teeth. And I think about so often like that, that's where we're always like one, one step ahead of like, where am I, where am I going? Where, where am I going to, where am I going to be? Am I going to be okay if I get there? Well, you know, if you, if you have, if your relationships are intact, you're, you're going to, you're going to be okay where you go and you don't, you don't have to know where that is. You can take time. My advice to anyone, and this is a privileged conversation and I'm not unaware of that. There was a point that made it possible for me to say, I'm going to step back because we were able to handle me stepping back financially. This is not a conversation that every single person can have, but I do think also recognizing if you find yourself in a situation that is taking too much, that there are ways for you to complete your stress cycle outside of that in a meaningful way that maybe will hold you until you get to the place where you maybe have options that you, you don't feel like you have right now. I now think about um, taking care of my nervous system and, and re-regulating it. That doesn't mean that I'm sitting around meditating 
you know, all the time or, or breathing all the time. What it means is, is that I, I now connect to the sensations in my body. I know when I'm very uncomfortable. I know when something is stressing me out, not because I'm obsessing about thinking about it. I know what it feels like in my body when I'm stressed about something. And I know what I can do to help myself. And that doesn't have to be that you get out of the stressful situation. You can take care of yourself in the stressful situation. You can know and say to yourself kind things, right? This is the one thing I do wish I had been able to do. And to be honest, I've come a really long way, but I still struggle with it. This idea of treating yourself the way you would treat a friend going through the same thing. Right. That's what you're doing for me right now. When you do all these nice things of saying, God, I mean, you know, how could you have done that? How, what, you know, but at the time, what I'm saying to myself is why can't you do this? Why can't you do this? Why get yourself out of bed? You, you, you can do this. The whole way we treat ourselves, the whole way we think about ourselves as there is an actual person inside of here that is deserving of care and love in the exact same way that you would and have been there for everybody in your life during their time of need. This is your time of need. That doesn't mean you can change your, your situation all the time. But, it, but if I could go back and I still couldn't change my situation because I still needed the income and needed you know, to work, I think I would have treated myself differently. I think I would have understood this idea of stop trying to plan trips so you have something to look forward to. Try to create what you need at home right now. Like that was, I kind of come to understand this love I have of planning trips as you're always trying to escape something. What's going on here, you know? And, and now I, I, I notice I don't really, I do still enjoy traveling and I still do like to have a trip on the books, but I don't need it like I used to. I know like my job is to be aware of how I'm doing, to ask for help when I need it, and to take care of myself the best I can, given what life throws at me. And if I'm doing that, then I might be able to be open to the universe offering me another path, a different way. We'll get back (laughs) together in 10 years. We'll see how it's going. (laughs) No, I think the, those are great points. Like I'm, I'm a big note taker, right? So, so when I jot it down and you can confirm if this is true or not, self-awareness, being present and being kind to yourself. I, I think so. I think, and I, with, with being present, it leads to the other two, right? Because if you're present, then you, you know, you, you kind of can, can gauge what's happening. And, and, and if you're not present, then you're thinking of things outside of you that, that honestly, you don't have any control over. Like a big learning for me too, is like, don't have that control. Like I, I think like when you're prone toward anxiety, you think if I just do these things, if I just think it through enough, I'm going to be able to get what I want, or it's going to happen the way I think it's going to happen. And the, the hard part about that is a lot of times that does reinforce itself, right? You, you do a lot of preparatory work and then things go well and you go, okay, right. It's so annoying because it's a false narrative. I don't believe it. Mm-hmm. I, I really don't. And 
but it's taken me a long time to recognize that, that there's very little I have control over in this world. And I most certainly do not control how anybody thinks about me. And I don't have any control over how people respond to things I do. And if I'm present, I can recognize when something's not working for me and I can choose something different. I can choose, even if I can't choose a different reality, I can choose to breathe. I can choose to calm myself down. I can, I can do something for me that will then make me more able to help other people rather than kind of helping other people to fill myself up. That's, I think that's the growth that I've had. I now understand when people say you need to take care of yourself as a mom, you're not going to do anything for them that you're not doing. You're not going to do anything for them that you're not doing for yourself. Like I have heard that a million times. I have never understood it in an embodied way, but I do now. If you then go down that path and you are not taking care of yourself and you are just helping other people, it's never going to give you Mm-hmm. you're going to burn out. That's the path to burnout. That's what I think. Yeah. And yeah. so, and that's not good for anyone. Like it's not good for you and it's not good for the people that you want to help. And so you, you do taking care of yourself so that you can be available to help other people, put your life preserver on first, put your, your mask on. It's, it's all in, it's all in a, you know, we, we know these things. Yeah. But until you know them, you don't know them. <laughs> Well, Alex, this is this is probably a good spot for us to to wind down. Let me let me ask you a last question. When your three daughters mm-hmm. have children and you become a a knowledgeable, wise grandparent, what's the best advice you could provide to those those grandkids of yours based on what you've learned and, and how you could help them? I hope I by that time I will fully be embodying the ideas of allowing your your journey to unfold without overwhelming fear. There's nothing that, that you don't come back from that you can't come back from. I want my kids and and my grandkids and all kids and all people to know that they are enough. There's nothing that anyone needs to do to earn love in this world. There's nothing anyone needs to do to be, to be considered okay. That just them, not what they do, not what they're good at, that who they are is enough. Alex, thank you. I'm so grateful and amazed at your ability to share, still learning, still admiring you. And I, and I'm, I'm sure our listeners can take away insights and tools and and starting points of how they can start to apply some of these tactics to their own life. I know I I have. Thank you to our listeners for spending time with us today. And thank you, Alex, for your generosity and your, your wisdom. It's been a great pleasure. Well, thank you. And thank you for your, your friendship and, and your support. You believing in me is a, is a really, a really uh, dear thing. So thank you. Trust me, this does worlds for me to (laughs) share a little bit of Alex Sullivan with the rest of the world. Oh, you're terribly kind. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Before you go, I would ask you to please do one thing. Please consider this simple question. Who is 
the most influential person in your life? Would you have that answer? I would love to tell your story. You can nominate Your Great Unfamous on Twitter or Instagram at gr8unfamous. If you want to do it privately, there's a link for that as well. But if you do none of that, at least let this person know what they mean to you. It could mean the world to them. Until the next episode, take care and be kind.